Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. This woman is one of the folk out there doing it. She is the editor, publisher, founder of MLK 50, Justice Through Journalism. Let me welcome the great Wendy C. Thomas. Hi. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here today. Listen, um, as a former journalist, I, um, I, I have been completely disgusted by what, um, <laughs> what the media has become. Mm-hmm. And so when I looked at MLK 50, it gave me joy. You know, it reminded me of Charles Loeb and all of those journalists from back in the day who took their expertise and told the stories that needed to be told from the community's perspective, centering what was needed in, in the community. And then it ended up being needed in the, in the rest of the country and the world. So is that, is that the impetus for you founding MLK 50 on the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination? Yeah, I mean, we definitely wanted to force people to consider, specifically in Memphis, what we had done with Dr. King's sacrifice. You know, I could tell the city was about to go into celebration mode, you know, act like everything uh, had changed, focus on, you know, the I have a dream speech, the part about little black boys and little white boys holding hands. But the reality was, is that a lot of people in Memphis were still poor. Workers were still struggling. There were sanitation workers who you know, went on strike in 1968, who were still on the job in 2018 because they couldn't afford to retire. And I just could not, as a journalist, let those things go uncommented on um, and act like this was a party when we really uh, needed to be recommitting ourselves to uh, King's Dream of Economic Justice. So you're from Ohio. I, I am a Buckeye. So what's your connection to Memphis? Why Memphis? My daddy moved here uh, to work at then Memphis State in 1980, and so my family moved here. So depending on the audience, I can claim to be like from the North or the South, but I've spent most of my career in Memphis and most of my life in the South. We we got uh, a front seat uh, to some Tennessee politics, you know, several weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, I feel like a lot of that was performative. And so we haven't heard much since, you know, and this is how, you know, how it happens, right? Th- stories are big and then, then they go away. We lose it. And the next big thing happens, but people are still living under an apartheid system. Things are still not right. People still don't have rights. So um, what you're doing with MLK 50 is important because you're going to continue to remind us about Tyree Nichols and what's happening there. The five children that were taken uh, after a traffic stop, they've been returned. So you're you're doing follow up work um, when you know everyone has moved on. How how difficult is that for you? Um, I mean, it's not the easiest thing to do to start your own newsroom in the South with no money, um, just an idea and a dream. But it is most rewarding work that I have ever done. And on the you know the covenant we had, the Tennessee Three. Um, they got expelled and then, well, two of them got expelled and then promptly sent back, which was the right decision for those local elected bodies to make. Um, but I just saw before I signed on here that the governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee, has announced a special section to deal with gun reform. I put that in the biggest of air quotes, um, August 21st. And so that'll be, I don't know, four or five months since the actual covenant school shooting. And the proposal that he's made, I just don't. I don't see how it's going to make any kind of meaningful change um, and gun violence, as we saw just from this weekend in Texas, is still a real pressing issue in this country. I was at uh, Target yesterday with my niece and nephew 
And for a moment I paused, I said, should I even be in here? I mean, that's how scared you be can become in, the, in a community that isn't necessarily unsaved, but the policies are unhinged, right? And it allows for people to do crazy things with weapons they should never own. Um, and I'm glad that I work for founded, I work with journalists uh, who believe it doesn't have to be that way. You know, this isn't your typical both sides. He said, you know, she said newsroom. Uh, we believe there's some things that are fundamental truths about life. And that's what we, how we approach the news and what we do. I love it. Uh, Wendy C. Thomas, what, what was the moment that you said, okay, because um, I'm always challenging, and Joe Madison as well, and everyone, Lavrie, Clay, challenging people to do, right? It's easy to talk, it's easy to complain, but to get up off the couch <laughs> and do something. What Was there a moment? Was there an incident? Was it just that the celebration was happening and you were like, but there are real stories going on, not that the 50th anniversary shouldn't be commemorated, Martin Luther King's uh, death shouldn't be commemorated, but we have issues here. What was that moment for you that made you decide to start a whole news outlet? Yeah, I think uh, if I had to go back, it'd probably go back to 2008 when I was at the Daily Paper in Memphis, the Commercial Appeal. I was an assistant managing editor there and Metro columnist, and I helped coordinate their coverage of the 40th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. And so I'd been thinking since then, what would it look like as a journalist to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination? Of course, we had the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, you know, Brown v. Board of Education. And so you're having these, these milestones come up. Um, and thinking about as a journalist, what would be my role? Um, in 2014, I uh, ended up leaving the paper because of uh, a short version would be white supremacy, patriarchy, that sort of thing, uh, and went to Harvard and did a Neiman Fellowship. And it was there where I was like, okay, how? This is my moment, right? I didn't have a plan B. Well, actually, my plan B was to go work at the utility company in the PR department. But uh, I was like, I'm going to give this journalism thing another go and try to start my new, own news organization. Um, I took a class in social entrepreneurship at Harvard, and the professor told me when I presented my project that it was not viable. It was not viable. And so I was like, okay, watch me. Watch. Watch me. So that kind of black black woman indignation kind of rose up, and I was like, you know, I can show you better than I can tell you. And so, Come on. That's yeah. sometimes the best thing in the world is for somebody to tell you what you can't do because of their limitations, right? Because they don't see you, um, which is why it's important for us to see each other and see ourselves, right? Um, because this world will tell you you're diminished and that you're not worthy, that you're not good enough. And it's the mantra that it has to happen in order for the power structure to maintain because it knows, it knows the truth. It knows right. it would completely be dismantled if we ever walk into our purpose and our actual power, our lived power. So what was the first thing you did, Wendy C. Thomas, after he told you that it wasn't viable at Harvard? Because that's the pinnacle. Of course, they know more. Right. Uh, so that professor told me it wasn't possible. And I remember I went over to a professor at MIT. I was taking a class from him and I was, you know, nearly in tears. I was like, you know, am I am I crazy? Am I stupid? He was like, oh, no, no. You can do it. Not only can you do it, you must do it. You know, so every, for everyone you have in your ear telling you it can't be done, there's always other people you can listen to who are like, you can actually make this happen. So I came back to Memphis and I raised three, a grand total of three thousand uh, dollars from college classmate, a girlfriend, and then uh, my favorite uncle in D.C. And I hope my uncle, other uncles, don't hear that. But one of my favorite uncles in D. My uncle. Well, he gave you money. They didn't. So yeah, he he earned that position. 
So we launched, um, our first stories was actually about, uh, I had a freelancer do this, was about um, what uh, share of executive jobs versus like lower level jobs, black and white people own. It was, um, I think a Bureau of Labor Statistics report um, that just showed again, how far we had not come um, and still having white men dominating these top roles, even though we trying to say, we shall overcome and black people concentrated in lower level jobs, um, all labor has value. But when we think about economic stability and the ability to build some kind of wealth, pass on an inheritance to your children, most people make their money through their primary jobs and still black people were being relegated to these lower levels of employment. Walk us through, all right, $3,000. What does that, what does that get you? Like, all right. So fortunately, uh, 20, 30 years ago, it would be a lot more difficult, you know, cause to, to build a website. Now I remember in the nineties, it cost like a couple of hundred thousand dollars to build a website, then the staff and you know, like you needed bank. So with $3,000, you got a domain name. <laughs> we needed a medium. That's what our, our first um, medium.com was where we published. It was like a blog so, really. Yeah. I don't real website, cause it was, but it was free. Right. So that's where we um, published our stories. You know, I tell people I lived off credit cards for the first 18 months while I was building this. And anybody who's had serious debt knows that when you wake up in the middle of the night and you think about it, you cannot go back to sleep. Um, and so it was, I have never worked harder than I did when I was working for myself. But we eventually were able to find some funders who believed in what we were doing. My first grant, I think, was $100,000 from the Serna Foundation. Um, that allowed us to pay people. We had freelancers that we were paying because we believe in paying workers what they're due. We never asked anybody to work for free. Well, I was only one working for free, but we never asked people to work for free and just gradually uh, raised money. You know, we started, launched in April, 2017. We just marked our sixth birthday. And in January, we were able to announce that we had gotten um, a $2 million over five-year grant from the Ford Foundation. Come on, um, Darren, you better do that. Yes. Bills, you know, for yes. several years out. And so, um, you know, hard work, uh, not always, but often can pay off. Um, but you had, had to, you had to first show and prove. Like you know, I feel like a lot of times people are looking for that instant. You know, I, I this idea is great, but when DC Thomas actually went out and did the thing for five years before the the money actually caught up, the real money because that hundred thousand dollars could could go in a couple of months for real, for real, you know? So to be in a situation where you, you, you're so committed to the outcome, I was asking you off mic. Um, and the number here is eight, six, six, eight, zero, one, eight, two, five, five. Cause I'm incredibly invested in what you're doing and want to magnify it. Because I believe if we have a, a MLK 50 in every city that all of these politicians will be held accountable. All of the stories that need to be told will be told because everything is local. All politics is local, but we're so inundated with this stuff that has nothing to do with us, but our garbage being collected, our water, our schools, with our teachers, what's happening there, local, 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 which is why they were able to hijack across the country because they understood the local dynamics, which is why there's an apartheid state in Florida and Texas and South Carolina and other places because they know local. We don't do local. This is important. Yeah. I, mean, I think there there definitely is a need for something like MLK 50 in every urban center. And luckily, we're part of a network of uh, nonprofit newsrooms, Black-led, 
um, across the country that are doing good work. So in New York, you have documented New York focusing on the immigrant population. Um, in uh, the Twin Cities, you've got Sahan Journal uh, doing some really, really good work there. Uh, in Detroit, you've got Outlier Media. Um, out in California, you've got Berkeley Side. In um, Atlanta, you've got Capital B. So there are folks out here, I think, who are uh, newsrooms out here who are liberation minded, um, who are being led by people of color, mostly black people, uh, who are putting in this in this work. And I think philanthropy is starting to recognize that they've got to step in and fill this gap um, with the demise of you know more traditional uh, media outlets, especially legacy newspapers. You said something about um, journalists should be serving. They, you know, not extracting. Yeah. Talk about that, Wendy. Like the, the role of, of journalism is to do what? Wendy C. Thomas. It's just, it's just serve the serve the people to meet their needs. Uh, you know, people say, well, what would your goal with creating MLK 50? And I have two answers. One is to completely dismantle the status quo. Like that's what we're here to do. But also to make a tangible, measurable difference in the lives of the most vulnerable people in Memphis, the people who have been pushed uh, to the margins. And I think that's, you know, that's what we do. I think, but traditionally journalism, uh, we, you know, you know how it is, reporters pop into a community, they get people to tell them something, uh, they put it on TV, they put it in the newspaper, and then they're gone. There's no more communication, there's no more interaction, and we're not actually giving anything to people. Uh, We're taking, we're taking. And so I think the way we try to do things differently, I'll just give you one example. Uh, of course, you know, after the uh, emergency rental relief money, you know, kind of disappeared and we came out of that phase, not disappeared, but we moved out of that phase, you know, eviction started to rise again across the country. And that was true here in, in Memphis. And, you know, our reporter, Jacob Steiner, one of our reporters, uh, went to eviction court all the time. And you would see these people facing off with, you know, the landlord's attorney and the judge, and they had no idea what was going on. Like, the process, if you've never gone through it, it's kind of, it's opaque. You know, people are using language. You don't know what that means. And so we wrote an eviction guide to tell people, this is what happens. And when you go there, this is what you can say to the judge. This is the language you should use to get a continuance. When you need to come back with paperwork, this is what this is what you should have. You need some resources because you can't afford a lawyer. Here's where you go. And we distributed those by hand in communities here. So trying to get people information they can use to not get put out on the streets. And what could be more important than, than housing, having a place to lay your head. Amen. And it's on MLK50.com, MLK50.com under housing, eviction resources, eviction guide, and what to do if there's no shelter. If you, if you have no shelter, there's stories, five lessons I learned from talking to unhoused people. I feel like the role of media is dissemination. I tell this to my students, it's dissemination. But you, as the journalist, have to show up fully. You know, I remember being a young reporter at the Daily News. Editors would send me out all of the melanemic, all of the mail, and tell me what the story was. And I always, as a 23-year-old, I was like, I ain't even got out there yet. How are you telling me what the angle is, you know, and it was in that moment I realized, oh, okay, I could follow this and do no good or, or mm-hmm. yeah, and rise because, you know, when you give people what they are, what they're looking for, they love that. Right. Or I can actually make a difference and tell people's stories um, the way they should be told. And so I made a conscious decision, but it's, it's a, uh, it's crazy. And it's even crazier now because you have people who don't even know how to edit like I don't even I'm just like whoa I'm looking at what's out there like 
we are doomed. We are doomed. But then I see you and I, I get hope, which is why I was like, come on through, come on through on, on your site. You also have, before you talk to a journalist, what was yeah. the impetus that that's powerful. I'm like, I need to, I, I need to study this. Yeah. Well, it was because it was again about that, not wanting to exploit people. You know, a lot of people, uh, most people don't ever, never talk to a journalist. You know, someone shows up, sticks a camera in their face or they're carrying a notebook and they're asking them questions about their lives or getting their names and they don't know where that information is going to go show up what have you and you know we have a lot of relationships with people in the activist and organizing community um and we wanted people to know if someone comes up to you and is like hey i want to ask questions ask questions you are in a position of power in that situation uh you should push back you want to know where is this going to go who are they you want to check out what their website, you may just look at the website and be like, I don't want to be a part of that. You know, uh, what does it mean to go off the record, say something on background? Um, we don't we don't teach people. Journalists typically don't teach people how to do that. But I think that's by that's not a mistake. Right. Mm-hmm. We want the situation power dynamic where you don't know what's going to happen. You, the source, don't know what's going to happen. And we have all the power and control. Um, and it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't I, be like that. I agree. Wendy with an I, Thomas, Wendy underscore C underscore Thomas, Wendy with an I. Let's go to the phones. The number here is 866-801-8255. Let's head over to Tennessee, your backyard, and welcome in State Representative Karen Camper. Okay. All right. State Rep. Karen Camper, welcome. Hey, Karen. How are you? Hey, Wendy. How are you, Representative? I'm so proud of her, uh, Karen. She's She's always been one to push the envelope in her writing. I remember her daily, uh, her article, I mean, her column she used to do that uh, we used to all wait with bated breath to see what Wendy had to say about the subject matter. So uh, proud of her and proud of you, all the things you're doing. I know you left, came back home to Memphis, and have really made a difference with the publication. And uh, I just wanted to let you know there's a lot of people rooting for you and a lot of people that are really proud of what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And state rep, um, how important is it to have someone like Wendy Thomas in MLK 50 for the work that you need to do? It's very important because you really need someone that's going to be honest and true to the people and make sure that those voices are heard, even when it's uncomfortable for people. Even when it's uncomfortable for us sometimes as legislators or elected officials, you still need to know. You still need to, you know, hear what the people are saying in your own decision making. And she's always been like that. I mean, on on a lot of work she's done over the years, she's always been that person. And sometimes you may or may not agree. Uh, You may feel like your uh, feathers have been ruffled a little bit. But it's really important to do and to have that voice that's just out there that you know when you get it, it's the truth, it's raw, it's what you need. You take it and you move on and you use it in your daily work. And so that's what she's been for Memphis. And with Memphis being, you know, predominantly African-American community, you know, sometimes people don't really want to hear what that voice is saying. But she makes sure that people hear that voice. And it means a lot to us. And I want you to know that, Wendy, it does. State Rep Camper, thank you for calling. I, you know, it's lovely to have people listening and just calling up and saying, "Hey, I uh, appreciate that." Uh, is this duplicatable? I asked you this. Uh, well, I started asking you this question before we came on the air. 
Wendy Thomas, uh, founder, editor, publisher of MLK 50. I feel like it, if, if you put the system together that we can just rinse and repeat and just, you know, with the right resources, like, so what would it take if Newark, New Jersey or Baltimore, which now, uh, Maryland has a black governor, but Baltimore has some issue. I feel like Baltimore is on the rise. Like that could be a Mecca, you know, we see what's happening in Atlanta, but there's so some places in South Carolina is right there. North Carolina is right there. Georgia. We can't relax just because you got Warnock and Ossoff and, Kemp is still a problem in the next election. Georgia could flip back real easily if we get, if we relax, like we need media with the foot on the gas. Thoughts right. about that? Yes. Yeah, so I think the model of what we do and the focus of what we do, poverty, power, and policy could, could absolutely be exported to other places. And I, like I said earlier, you know, I think there's some newsrooms out there that are doing that. Um, in Baltimore, you've got Baltimore beat, uh, you know, led by Lisa Snowden, black woman, so you have people doing that. I think it's really important for the community itself. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say, okay, hey, this is MLK 50. Here's the model. You do exactly this, right? Mm. Because it's a little different in different communities. And the people on the ground know best. Um, so I think community-led newsrooms are important. But, you know, I get calls all the time from people who are trying to start something up. They're like, hey, I see what you've done. Can you give me some advice? I'm like, raise some money. Don't go into credit card debt <laughs> like that. Don't do what I did. <laughs> but if you are passionate about it, uh, and this may be a little Pollyannish, but um, and definitely said with all the privilege that I've enjoyed in my life. Um, but I think if you are determined to do it, it can get done. And there's lots of support now in this nonprofit news industry, uh, the Institute for Nonprofit News, local independent online publishers that have all these resources where you don't have to do like I do and kind of fumble around blindly and make a lot of mistakes. There's roadmaps um, to do this and it's, it's possible. Your biggest um, joy in doing MLK 50, Wendy, what, what is the thing that brings you the most joy about this work? Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I began my career as a reporter, you know, um, and so that's my background. I've spent a lot of time in management but I like to write and I like to report. And I think my biggest joy uh, of my career so far um, came in 2019 when I did an investigation into the debt collection practices of a nonprofit hospital here. I won't go into the whole story, but they were suing hundreds and hundreds of people in the year, uh, a year, dragging them into court, even though they're nonprofit and are supposed to be providing a lot of charity care. These people's mistake in court, these defendants, their only mistake was being poor and sick at the same time. And to see all these defendants, most of them black women, um, being dragged in there and have their lives ruined, their paychecks garnished um, because of this hospital that, of course, was making money, you know, paying its executives very, very well. Uh, we had to put them on blast. Um, and we did. And the hospital ended up making significant changes, um, including overhauling its charity care policy to make it twice as generous as it had been before. They raised the pay of their lowest paid workers from $10 an hour to $15 an hour because, yes, they were suing their own employees, too. Um, and they ended up erasing uh, nearly $12 million worth of hospital debt for more than 5,300 um, defendants. Um, one of those defendants was a woman, Miss Carey, who I met at court. She really reminded me of my mother, uh, the kind of real modest woman, you know, no makeup, wear a, a slip, a line slip, and I mean, a line slip. <laughs> like that kind of that level of modesty 
Um, and Miss Carey had about $32,000 um, in debt, which was twice what she'd made the previous year. Um, if she paid it off as ordered, she would be 90 years old by the time she paid off that debt. Miss wow. um, Carey had her debt forgiven. She went to church and she praised God. She got a good shout on. Um, and to be able to see that, you know, and know that, that the difference that made in her life and the lives of people that I will never meet um, makes the work worth it. Mm. Who edits you, Wendy C. Thomas? I one of the reasons why I don't write anymore is because I feel like good writers need great editors, and people don't realize that. Like I'm not playing around. If you somebody asked me to write something recently, and I and they sent me an email, and I said, "Who's editing?" And he said, "I am." And his email had typos in it. I was like, "Dude, that ain't happen." Like I can't. Like you ain't proofread your damn email to me. There's no way that I am going to trust my words and you're, it's not happening. Who, right. who, who edits you and how, how important is that? People don't even realize. Yeah. I mean, if I meet a writer who's like, yeah, I don't really like to be edited. What I know for sure is that you're not a good writer because all good writers understand the value of a good editor. You want that push, that pushback. You want to be told this doesn't work before it gets published. Like that's the time to learn what could be improved. Um, so when I did, when I do investigative work, uh, I partner with ProPublica, amazing newsroom um, based in New York. Uh, much of what you've read, pretty much all of what you've read about Clarence Thomas and the way he's on the take uh, came from ProPublica. So they broke that story. So Charlie Ornstein has been my editor there. Got to shout out, shout out Charlie, he's amazing. Um, locally, when I'm writing, it's my uh, executive editor for MLK 50, uh, Adrian Johnson Martin. It's me, and you know, sometimes you know, I'm I'm also her boss, but when I'm writing, she's my boss, and it can be a little humbling to be like, mm, yeah, when to hear from her, yeah, this is not working at all. Change this, but that's okay, right? Everybody has room to grow and improve, including me. Even though I've been in the business for 30 years, uh, everybody has room to grow. As I mentioned, I want this place to be like, uh, you know, the lab, the the incubator. So when there are stories that MLK 50 wants to push out widely, you have a home to come and talk. Let's let's do that frequently and uh, keep doing what you do. I, I'm on the site. Is there a place where we can also donate? I know you got money. Oh, right there. It's right there. You can donate. Hold on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You could. Y'all could tithe, like, you know, how y'all tithe to some pastors that ain't really feeding the community. You could actually tithe to MLK 50. I'm just saying, it's right there. You can just do that. So, just saying. People that don't have money to, to give, we appreciate a follow on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, all of that's meaningful to us. Well, you're meaningful too. Wendy C. Thomas, thank you again for being here. MLK 50, Memphis. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.